News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Thursday, the 18th of March. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. On tonight's show, Ngolisi Mgojo, CEO of Exaro Resources, on the company's results. Stefano Marani, CEO of Australia-listed South African helium producer Renogen, which has just put the sleepy free state town of Virginia on the world map. Harry Smith of the Ascendus Health Activist Lobby Group will join us in the second half of the show to pick up on share price manipulation. Mia Kruger, Director and Portfolio Manager at Kruger International, will also be speaking to us about her in-depth insights on domestic and global investing. First, my colleague Melanie Nathan has the business news highlights. Exaro Resources has announced increased revenue of almost 29 billion rand for the year ended in December. Net operating profit dropped by a third. Headline earnings per share dropped slightly and the company declared a final dividend. After the disposal of Exaro's shareholdings in Tronox Holdings, the proceeds will be used for a special dividend and a 1.5 billion rand share buyback program. African Rainbow Capital's intrinsic net asset value per share dropped over the half-year ended in December. It says intrinsic portfolio value increased over the period. TimeBank has signed on close to 3 million customers, half of which were active at the end of the year. Rain saw a fair value increase of 380 million rand. Cash in the ARC fund increased to over 400 million rand. After recent news that South African finance company Barrack Fund Management is seeking approval to restructure its $4 billion fund because half of its assets are tied up in illiquid investments across Africa, it has emerged that employees had previously raised alarm over the valuation of assets and the quality of collateral. The firm says its compliance officer found no wrongdoing when allegations were investigated. China's Sinovac biocompany may be able to supply South Africa with as many as 5 million doses of its COVID-19 vaccine within weeks of securing regulatory clearances. This is according to the drug maker's local partner, Numolux. The vaccines could be delivered two to three weeks after approval is granted, said CEO Hilton Klein. Tanzanian President John Magufuli, who was criticized for his denialism of the coronavirus pandemic, has died only five months after he won a second term in a disputed election. He was 61. Vice President Samia Hassan announced that Magufuli had died from a heart ailment in hospital. I'm Melanie Nathan and that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. My colleague Justin Rowe Roberts covers the stock markets throughout the day for biznews.com. Justin, take us through the highlights from today. The JSE All Share Index was down to 66,600. Some of the day's highlights include Sabanya Stillwater was up over 6% to 71 rand a share on the back of stronger commodity prices. Nedbank was down on the day to 131 rand a share. Truewers was down 4% to 48 rand a share. After a strong rally over the last few weeks, MTN was slightly down to 87 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 78 cents against the dollar, 20 rand 55 cents against the pound, and 17 rand 62 cents against the euro. Gold is weaker at $1,721 an ounce. The premier cryptocurrency is up at 850,000 rand per bitcoin. And another down day for Brent crude, falling to $66 a barrel. My colleague Charles Boiter is a CFA holder. As a specialist with the Chartered Financial Analyst designation, he analyzes stocks for the business community with a view to assessing a company's intrinsic value. Charles, today you've got African Rainbow Capital on your radar. Take us through your number crunching. Jackie, thanks. Uh, African Rainbow Capitals is very interesting. It's a, it's an investment holding company, which uh, it's like Remgro and PSG. Now, what investment holding company does, it holds, like the name says, it holds investments, both listed and unlisted. So, for instance, um, ARC holds listed, positive listed companies like Alexander Forbes, Afrimat, and a small piece of EOH. And its most well-known listed, unlisted investments are Time Bank, 
the new digital bank uh, that, as we've heard, is growing tremendously. And then Rain, the data provider, the 5G guys. Um, so how do you value uh, something like this? It's, it's a bit difficult. Uh, investment holding companies are, are more difficult than your normal listed companies because the parts of the portfolio where they own a listed investment, you can actually just take the share prices of the listed investments and then carry that value through. So, for example, the Alexander Forbes uh, part that they own is worth $1.1 billion. Their Afrimat part is worth $1.1 billion. But then, then you have things like TimeMank, which is unlisted. And we don't have a lot of data as outside investors to, to see what the company is doing. But uh, a few months or so ago, Filipino investors and a private equity firm bought 20% of Time Bank uh, for $1.6 billion. Now, if 20% of Time Bank is worth $1.6, it's not outlandish to think that 100% is worth five times that, so $9 billion. But ARC only owns 59% of, uh, of Time, so that means the value that it has of time is about 4.7 billion. So if you take um, the value it has in time, the 4.72 billion, you add the Alexander Forbes 1.1 billion, and you add the Afrimat 1.1 billion, you get to 6.9 billion as the total portfolio value. Now today, the share price is trading at 3 Rand 84, which puts it on a total value of 5 billion. So immediately you see it's it's just the things that it holds there is worth more than its share price. But um, here things become interesting because investment holding companies also has management fees. And a lot of people have raised concerns that ARC charges very high management fees for, his, for managing this pool of investments, this unlisted uh, shares and this listed in shares. For instance, um, they, they ask 1.75% of of the value of the portfolio. And that is almost, uh, I think, 180 million or something like that. So, so a bit of financial jiggery-pokery there to yes. uh, feather their nests at yes. African so, Capital. Yes. So, for instance, the, their net asset value, they say the net, net asset value is of the portfolio is 8 Rand 82. The market says it's 3 Rand 84. So... That is a huge difference. That's almost a 50% discount. Now, investment holding companies usually trade at a small discount because of this management fee thing. But 50% is a huge number. So, and, Charles, before we yeah. close off here, then is it better to, to avoid this kind of investment if the managers are, are doing better out of this than the shareholders? Not necessarily. There's a price for, uh, for any investment. Um, so if it's low enough, if the market price is low enough, you can – you make a lot of money through this. So, for instance, to give you an idea, I just gave you three investments. Uh, I haven't even included rain. They value rain at three and a half billion. So I said rain is zero. So if you, so my my um, as I said, my intrinsic value is essentially, you know, four rand seven cents, which is a little bit more than the three rand eighty four, right? The the share price. So if you add rain to that that uh, the intrinsic value becomes much higher. But finally, I don't like it when managers do this sort of thing because they're earning money on an intrinsic value thing and the market is giving you a lot less. That was Charles Boerter, my colleague at biznews.com, who crunches numbers for our community members with a view to helping them assess whether a share is a good buy or not. Well, coming up is Ngolisi Mgojo, CEO of Exara Resources. You released your results today. Group revenue up at least 12%. Headline earnings per share up 26% to just under 30 rand. What did you do to achieve this amid very difficult circumstances, Ngolisi? Thank you very much for, for, for inviting me. Uh, I, I think what we have been able to do, do is that uh, as far back uh, as five years ago, we started and looking at how we become globally competitive in so far as being able to respond to a very agile market that is very dynamic. And we said to ourselves that we have to be able to 
first understand the market and then gear ourselves up to be able to respond to the market. So we embarked on a 17 billion capex program to uh, to bring new capacity, but also to be able to come up what we call an early value call strategy, whereby we relook at our life of mine plans to ensure that we extract the high value coal uh, much earlier, and therefore uh, we don't end up with uh, stranded assets going to the future. Now we see the volumes that have come. We see the way also we are able to have a fast product mix that enables us to respond to this market. Now this became very, very prevalent during this COVID period, whereby by in large with the curtailment of economic activities, our natural markets like India uh, and also uh, South Korea uh, and Japan started being negatively being impacted by the closure of those economies. And other opportunities also emerged, which were very, very opportunistic to be for us. And first of all, we then said, how do we respond as Exaro in this COVID crisis? We were very sure that, first of all, we had to look at at the safety of our people and we had to make sure that we minimize the number of people that are infected so that we can have much more better productivity happening in the operations. We, that also included acquiring testing uh, and setting up testing facilities that we own as Xaro to ensure that we can respond quicker to testing our employees as part of the standard protocols also that were required. But then we also were able to respond much quicker in so far as uh, taking advantage of new markets, which were really the Vietnamese market, and were able to get and secure our permits from the DMRE to actually start producing. Because remember, we were declared, the coal, biz, the coal sector was declared an essential service, especially given the fact that we supply coal to ESCOM. But we were able then to respond much quicker in terms of securing rail uh, to enable us to export our volumes of which under these market conditions, looking at new markets, we hit records of 12.2 million tons of exports. Now, this is, and this performance, what people need to understand, is against a backdrop of a very depressed coal market that really was one of its worst in many, many years. And we therefore had to really rely on driving efficiencies, driving productivity, making sure that you know, we are able to reduce our costs and and also ensure that uh, we are able to produce at the maximum volumes that we could to reduce our rent per ton and be able to find markets. The domestic market was a very challenging market because with the lockdown also, the economy was came to a grinding halt in, within our, in the country. So our domestic markets into the distillers market, into the cement market, all came to an end uh, during that period. And it meant that, uh, and of course, ESCOM was also not uh, signing up new contracts at this point in time, uh, given the fact that they were long on coal, and which meant that our uh, ECC uh, mine and our Leopard mine, which naturally would have performed much better if they were supplying coal to ESCOM, had to now, under very, very low cost uh, uh, in, I mean, low, low, low price environment of the lower quality calls that had to be exported. So these are the, some of the things that we really did was we were agile, we were able to pull the drivers, we were able to now to start getting the return on the capital that we have employed and we are geared up now to be able to export as much as 15 million tons. However, the big challenge as we said is the fact that TFR, that is Transnet Freight Rail, is having its challenges that are, which are known in the industry right now. Well, Lisi, I've got two colleagues who are really looking forward to getting into the meat of some of your comments about coal. But before we go there, can you just briefly sketch out the rationale for the special dividend and the share buyback? Well, you will recall that uh, for a number of years now, we had uh, announced right at the beginning of about five years ago that we were going to start disposing of our Tronox uh, uh, stake uh, and this is part of a last tranche of a disposal process that has been ongoing for quite some time. And we've had to be very patient in the pacing of that by making sure that 
we take advantages when we see better market opportunities to do that. When we saw that the, uh, even the pigment and, uh, and zircon prices were, were recovering. So this was the last tranche of that disposal. And, and we had up front also indicated that the bulk of the, of the uh, proceeds from any Tronox tranche would go back to the shareholders. In this instance, what we've also observed that if you look at the intrinsic value of our coal business vis-a-vis where the share price is uh, and where also the iron ore price was, that basically coal was, uh, the shareholders were getting coal for free. And therefore, there was a big disconnect between... That's an astonishing situation. Absolutely. And therefore, if you look at where the intrinsic value and the fact that we are going to be very much cash generative because now we are really, the the, the capex that we put in in, in place is really now starting producing the cash. So we started saying to ourselves, well, with this last tranche uh, of Tronox dividend, which we already said we were going to give back part of that back to the shareholders, how do we best do it? In the past, it has always been just through only just a special dividend. But we said to ourselves, in this instance, given where the intrinsic value of our coal coal, uh, business is and the share price, that is also an opportunity that that we can embark on a share buyback program, which we will start implementing XDV. My colleague Justin Rowe-Roberts is in our Johannesburg studio, and he wants to pick up with you on the dividend issues. Hmm. Okay. What does the future look like for Exara? At a five to six price to earnings ratio, the market is essentially saying that this company won't be around in 10 years. What is, what is your response to that? Our response to Exara is how we're going to be just uh, migrating our business to a low carbon, uh, eco- uh, in support of a low carbon economy. We have taken a very considered effort and a deliberate strategy. Uh, given the fact that we have been in renewable energy since 2012, if you can recall that Synergy is a, is a, is, there was a joint venture between Exaro and Tata Power uh, since 2012. We bid it in the two, in the second window. We had installed capacity of 230 megawatts. And in 2019, because of that transition, uh, which already seen happening at that time, we then acquired Tata Power's uh, 50%. Now we own we now own synergy 100%, and therefore our drive is going to be responding to the growing liberalisation of the uh, electricity sector in South Africa, which is talking very very favourable towards renewable energy. I don't know whether you have heard the latest um, announcement by the minister today as part of giving feedback on this uh, on, on 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 the whole liberalisation of the energy sector. And one of the things he has announced today, this afternoon, was that self-generation, that is not tied into the grid. That is now, that is self-generation behind the meter or within the premises, which does not have to be tied into the ESCOM transmission line, does not require any licensing. Now, that is a major, major structural adjustment, structural change in the whole uh, renewable energy sector, which means that now the whole self-generation on site is going to open new market opportunities. And we are looking at this from a decarbonization point of view on the one side, we are in terms of how we actually also support our existing coal business in terms of decarbonizing, how we supply, how our energy business is going to be supplying uh, an operation like Khutakhalek with about an 84 megawatt solar plant as, that we, as part of the concept study that we, uh, we are advanced in doing and also help them reduce their electricity tariff uh, by uh, a, a much long-dated uh, power purchase agreement of a 20-year PPA, which is not going to be subject to ESCOM's uh, increase, uh, uh, double-digit increase uh, price electricity tariff in, uh, increases, uh, but more linked to uh, inflation adjustments. And in that, also reducing your carbon footprint. So that supports the mine in terms of reducing its cost, in terms of reduce and overall companies' reduction of our carbon footprint, while creating a very secure uh, customer base in terms of supplying long-term PPAs, uh, building up our energy business. And with that now, we've seen how even within the, uh, within the mineral sector, the mining companies are saying we want to be able to generate our own power but by and large, a lot of them, they don't want to own the asset. They just want to take the, have an off-taker agreement with a 
with a project uh, service provider of renewable energy. And we see great opportunities in doing that and also providing services that can come with that at, at, at the next phase. So this is a whole new play. It also talks to our own commitment that we have also spoken to uh, and, and, and pronounced on that we are on a path to a carbon neutral uh, future for Exarum, whereby uh, we will be carbon neutral by 2050 in terms of our scope one and scope two emissions. And we have also supported that with the TCFD uh, assessment and the recommendations thereof that is going to enable us now to map out in terms of timelines of what we need to do to get and, and the type of projects and the type of initiatives and the types of investments we're going to need to do to actually get to that 2050 uh, carbon neutrality commitment. So, and we've also, uh, as we announced uh, today, that we have been on a path to building the capacity, the capabilities within that, and we've just brought in now uh, a new en uh, energy MD, uh, Roland Tatnal, who's got vast experience in building energy projects, both from the private equity side that he was, man he was MD of, and also on the deal uh, generation and financing and, and project development uh, of, uh, of energy projects, not only in South Africa, but globally in many jurisdictions into Africa, in Middle East, in India. And so he's got that vast experience. So we are now building this team that's going to be able to he drive into very, very highly qualified, Ngolisi. How much time will he take to settle into the job? Oh, no. What I mean, of... the man understands. The man has been sitting here for the last... Uh, he's, fortunately, he's married to a South African. So he's been sitting okay. here, although he was although he was working for a, an overseas company, but he's been sitting in South Africa. He knows this landscape inside out. So he can hit the ground running? He's, the man has not... Been, since the day we said we're going to take... we we we. we with offering you, he's been working hard in his, in his own mind about what he wants to bring in. And today he had the opportunity to have a platform, even at our results presentation, just to share what his thinking is all about. So the reason I asked is that you also announced today that Dr. Nambasa Tsengwa is going to take over from you as CEO in two years. And that's quite a long that's handover. Right. Does she need such a long handover because she's a woman? No, it's got nothing to do with being a woman. It's got everything to do with the fact that the transition is going to require even a seasoned CEO a lot of uh, time to be able to actually do this thing correctly because she still has to deliver on the early value strategy point of view. She also has to pick up the reins on some of our other aspects of how we are bringing business transformation in the organization. She also has to be sitting on many other uh platforms where I was sitting on in terms of the Mineral Council, in terms of BLSA, because we don't only operate within what we inwardly. We play a very critical role in a lot of things that have to happen uh, that positions Exaro as being a critical organization that is very involved in the whole uh, drive around the, uh, the economic recovery of South Africa. We play all of those. And therefore, she's okay. going to what was your handover hand period? How much time did you need to get used to your job as CEO? It was 11 months. Okay. I'm, I'm and just, the difference, it's just puzzling because she, she was the winner of the Standard Bank Businesswoman of the Year Award and the 28th winner of the Pan-African Awards, the most influential businesswoman in the mining industry. So it's just a bit puzzling that she needs so much time uh, to, to take over from you. The strategy that we were driving when I took over is totally different than the strategy that's been driven today. Okay. Totally different. I see it, it is quite interesting, though, that you do have 30% of women in positions compared to about 12% in the South African mining industry. So why do you have such a high number of women? Because we believe in that. We believe in diversity and inclusion. We have a strategy that actually reports to the Social and Ethics Committee of the Board around how we're going to actually drive uh, diversity and inclusion, fair pay as being a very strategic imperative of the board. And do they also have long lead-in periods or does it depend on the job? It depends on the job. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us. What are you going to be doing uh, going forward for the next year to try and unlock value for shareholders? Uh, you mean in the next coming two years? Yes. 
is executing on the strategy that we have been talking to. That's what we've got. Been... The board has approved the strategy. We just need now to execute on it. You've been listening to Ngolisim Gojo, CEO of Exara Resources. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. Stefano Marani is CEO of Renogen, a helium producer with production rights to renewable gas resources in Virginia in the Free State. Renogen is a South African company listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. It has announced a significant gas strike at a well in the Virginia area, which is going to put the company, the, the, the town on the map. Earlier, he spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of Biz News, about the strike and why it has got investors pushing up the stock price. Hear what he has to say. So we, uh, yes, absolutely. So we're we're in a particularly interesting part geologically of the world. Um, the, um, the the area was was basically home to a series of asteroids a long, long time ago, and these asteroids set off some rather unique geological consequences. And the uh, the long and the short of it is, is that we've got by far the world's richest helium concentration in the area, and this this well is part of the drilling program that we've undertaken. And the strike is uh, is quite meaningful in in our lives in terms of proving up the the extent of what it is that we're sitting on. And can you quantify how much you think you found there in relation to what other big finds there are in the world? So, I think in terms of concentrations, I can I can speak meaningfully around concentrations. I don't think that this one one strike necessarily per se changes uh, will will have an immediate result on the numbers. Um, obviously, all of this data needs to go to, a, to an evaluator and the evaluator then needs to look at the geology uh, in, total, in total before they can come up with updated numbers. But this specific strike was very interesting for us because it was in an area that we weren't, um, we didn't have any proven reserves in. So that means that we're going to have a meaningful impact in terms of what our actual numbers are from a, from a proven and prospective um, standpoint. But then from a helium concentration perspective, I think all eyes are on what the concentration is in this well, simply because if you look at global helium concentrations, Qatar is sitting at 0.01% helium concentration in their gas. The United States on aggregate has 0.35% across their gas. Uh, we had a well over here at 12%, which is unheard of. It's unprecedented. And our average is 3.4%, which is also unprecedented. So I think all eyes are on, on, on this well and the, the, the analysis from this well because that will really determine what, what the field looks like from a, uh, from a helium perspective. Stefano, many of our listeners are not really familiar with what helium is actually used for apart from the usual blimps and party balloons and so on. Where is the demand for helium coming for? What really makes you excited about this find? So, uh, unfortunately, the one thing that I can say is that you can't use it anywhere to get a squeaky voice like that YouTube clip. But, uh, no, so helium is particularly important in the medical industry for MRIs. So you can't take an MRI and you can't make an MRI machine. But then it's also particularly important in things like rocketry. So if you look at SpaceX and all of those rockets that Musk puts up into, uh, into space, Falcon 9, I believe the figure is somewhere in the region of around 2 million party balloons worth of helium went into that rocket to get it off the ground. But then also just everyday things like a cell phone, like a television, like fiber optic cables, any laptop that has a microchip or any, any instrument that actually has a microchip computer in it, you can't manufacture any of these things without helium and there is absolutely no substitute for it at all. Why is so that? What, what does that actually do? So on, on rocketry, it's, um, on rocketry and MRIs, it's because it's a, uh, it's a super coolant um, and it gets down to temperatures and it remains in liquid form at temperatures that absolutely no other element is still liquid at. And that's important because the colder you get, the more superconductive certain metals become and you need that to be able to create the magnets to be able to take the images. But when it comes to the manufacturing of electronics, it's a completely inert gas and you can't really substitute and use neon or argon or krypton in, in these applications, A, because of the cost, but B, also because they're, they just have different chemical properties to helium. Helium is by far the most inert, so there, there isn't really an ability to substitute helium with any other gas in the manufacture of these electronics. 
I see that you've been hitting the global headlines about this ultra-cold uh, facility, and there's a lot of excitement that you'll be able to help transport COVID-19 vaccinations. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yes, so we, we put our heads together and thought, how could we help out? And, um, and what we came up with is a product that we call CryoVac. And, you know, right now as it stands, transporting, transporting at a temperature of minus 70 degrees Celsius um, without any access to a power source Historically, you've only managed to get three days. But using helium as a cryogen in this case um, that we've that we've designed and built allows us to, under the right circumstances, transport vaccines and other biologics at minus 70 degrees for up to 25 days. So it really is a game changer when you're talking about uh, about the developing world, where you know, the, the the timeline to get vaccines anywhere where there isn't power on the other side and you don't have the ability to move the vaccines from from a polystyrene cool box with dry ice in it to to anything else um yeah it, it just makes sure that the vaccines arrive at their destination and can be kept in uh, at their destination in a way that preserves the efficacy of the vaccine in the first place and have you had any orders for this yet and how much of this are you starting to produce for the COVID 19 vaccination rollout so we we've got a lot of interest and a lot of demand. We have not um, we have not started taking orders. We have not agreed with anyone that we will start taking orders because we are in a validation phase. And pleased to say, I popped into the uh, into the laboratory today, and everything was going on track, and everything was proceeding really well. So validation will probably take a little bit longer, um, just also because of the very nature of how long this thing can keep its cold for. We're validating until until we run out of cryogen. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. That was Stefano Morani, CEO of Renogen, a helium producer that is creating waves among global investors. Coming up, Mia Kruger is a director and portfolio manager at Kruger International. Earlier, she spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of Biz News, about investing in the JSE, offshore allocation and cryptocurrencies. Take a listen. Well, Jackie, I think when we consider the reality of the fact when you deal with South Africans, they have the majority of the assets tied up in South Africa in any case. So most South Africans have an underweighting to global exposure and they need more global exposure, not less. So if you just consider the fact that when you look at the, the average investor in South Africa, they probably own a house, which is the majority of the assets. They probably have a car. And they probably have, hopefully, in South Africa, if that is the case, a steady income stream, which then is also tied to South Africa. And in many cases, especially with younger investors, the income stream seems to be their largest asset. And if that is from South Africa, then you really have to consider increasing your investment diversification offshore, purely out of a risk um, risk perspective. But despite the fact that from a risk perspective, it could be to your benefit, if you consider the long-term trend of the RAND to the dollar, for instance, or to major currencies, we do still see a, a deteriorating RAND situation just due to the fact that locally we've scored so many own goals. Our economy is not very strong. We don't have the highest, um, the highest, we don't, we, well, we don't have the highest respect from global investors. And that's why we don't see uh, the majority of global uh, investor funds going to emerging markets moving into South Africa, unfortunately. And as long as that remains the case, it will still be in your benefit to diversify away from the RAND. And then, of course, we also see a great asset investment opportunities globally. And then just looking at the domestic market, where do you see the opportunities? There must be some bright spots in South yes. Africa. No, most definitely. We are particularly excited about the renewable energy and about infrastructure. And when I talk about infrastructure, there's a couple of sort of niche areas, but especially let's focus on the renewable energy side. Last year, we uh, we came to the market. We helped with the listing of a, a, a company that is a holder of an investment in the Titicama Community Wind Farm, and we've included that in the Kruger Funds. So we are doing a lot of work to increase our exposure to renewable energy initiatives in South Africa, and it's uh, unfortunately not been that easy up till now for retail investors to get access to renewable energy. It was more a case of if you were a very large 
pension fund or a very large uh, private equity investor, you could get uh, exposure to these funds. And also, if you're still in South Africa when you invest in private equity funds, there's a there's much less regulation in terms of reporting, etc. So it is not that easy for retail investors to invest with a lot of certainty into those uh, funds. So we've been trying to to do a lot of work to make it more accessible for retail investors. And um, yes, we've managed to do that so far, uh, being able to increase or to to get an exposure of just over 5% in all our local funds. And at this stage, we're very excited about the fact that there are draft um, legislation on the table to increase the diversification within asset class classes under Regulation 28 in South Africa, and that would then include infrastructure with a quite, I think, a predominant focus on renewables. So that would be exciting if that comes through. I still think that will take some time, and when it comes through, it'll still not be as easy for investors to access those projects because there's still a lot of uh, red tape in terms of the structure, how you can access it, and then which part of the, the deal you allow to participate. So you've got an early in with uh, renewable energy. Are you looking for, obviously, other opportunities now as well? But it sounds like there's going to be a bit of a rush for those opportunities. Yes. So we've uh, we've decided, as I said, to invest in the Titicama Community Wind Farm. It's been in production already and supplying wind and electricity to, to ESCOM for, for, I think, over three years, since 2016. Also, that that would be five years already. Um, but uh, the fact is, we're not interested to to take part in any of the the initiatives as a angel investor or as a seed investor, where we have to take the risk of um, of the of constructing the the opportunity and then sort of um, paying down the debt before it starts earning a return. So this, we were very fortunate to get into the this uh, transaction where we were able to. Uh, to get into the into a deal where it's already um, earnings generative and cash generative. So also when you consider the private equity market, there are many players who only participate in the first couple of years of the development of these projects, and they normally seek to exit these projects when they become cash flow positive. Obviously, there's a different risk profile to both sides, and we only we're only interested in playing in the second part. And looking at the listed space, and I suppose is a very popular stock in a lot of fund managers' portfolios, where do you stand in relation to NASPERS and Process? Yes, so I think, you know, if you consider our, uh, our portfolio construction methodology at Kruger International, we spend a lot of time focusing on the research around portfolio construction, how to effectively construct portfolios to limit risk and to be able to, over a longer rolling time, deliver market-beating returns. So we don't want to be the number one. We don't have any aspirations to be the number one fund because very seldom you remain there. Uh, we want to just beat the market over time. And we think that, you know, over time is rolling five-year periods. When you consider that, it actually leads you to a much broader diversification in your funds and you don't really focus on stock picking as such so much. You much rather have a broader, as I say, a broader and very um, more focused on cost effectiveness uh, when you include any securities in the funds. So, yes, as I said, that would, that is probably our focus. And considering that, we still have a large exposure even within our asset allocation fund. So our balanced fund and our Kruger Prudential fund, which is a sort of a low equity exposure fund, we still have a large exposure to South African equities. And when you do follow the market quite closely in South Africa, you are deemed to have a large exposure to NASPAT and process. We still think it's a company with good underlying assets. Uh, you know, and as I say, we'd much rather reduce our risk and limit our risk than take uh, big bets against the market. So at this stage, as most people in South Africa, we've got quite a hefty uh, exposure to NASPAT and process. The big miners and Sabanya Stillwater put out this, was flirting with Anglo Gold and Anglo Gold Ashanti about this mega mining company. What What is your view on such a company? Would that be a good idea for these companies to merge? Well, you know, us talking about this is, is nothing more than speculating and dreaming because the fact that uh, there has been commentary around this from, from the various um, CEOs, Neil Froneman, et cetera, means that there are no talks on the table. Otherwise, they'd be limited to what they were able to say without um, uh, bringing out, um, you know, market warnings. So I think that we need to take that into consideration. It's really nothing more than a dream at this stage. I think it would benefit South Africa as a, as a commodity country. I think that there could be much more done uh, in South Africa to make it more attractive and, and focus the attention on investing within South Africa, there's a big uh, opportunity to 
to invest in commodities worldwide due to the fact that there has been quite some time where uh, where there hasn't gone a lot of money into further development in these commodity companies. They have not uh, put in more um, capex to develop these companies further, and there is an opportunity for them to capitalize on that. South Africa, you know, we can still capitalize on that. If we merge these three companies, it would become the largest producer of gold in the world. So um, there are benefits to it, but I don't think that it's anything more than a dream and speculation at this stage. What's your thinking on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, your thinking, and then also in your organization and whether you might consider them aspects of this for your portfolio or not? Yeah, I think it's uh, much too early to to uh, consider Bitcoin as an investment uh, instrument. I think it's nothing more than a speculative instrument at, the, as, at this stage. When you consider the characteristics of a um, of a currency or a stable, um, you know, paying medium. It's definitely not something that's as volatile as we see with Bitcoin. It's also a store of value, which Bitcoin doesn't seem to be at this stage. And there are just too many questions around it um, at this moment for us to include as an investment instrument. We are long-term investors and not speculators, but we are uh, watching the space. We are considering the technology that goes into it, and we are looking at what what other market participants are doing. But we are still cautious in terms of um, of you know um, including it or talking about inclusion of it into any investment portfolios in the near future. And then just before we close off here, a lot of people, a lot of investors are worried about the U.S. markets getting quite bubbly. Yes, um, and a lot of people are expecting some sort of crash, if not all the stocks, emerging tech stocks. Where are you? on the emerging tech stock side of things? Yes, yeah, so um, I think there's an interesting uh, topic that I that did quite some reading on some of the research that I received over the last couple of days, uh, very much focused on, um, on the fact that the trend towards value investing has picked up speed. If we consider the indices and how they've fared since uh, the election in, in the US on the 6th of November, we see the value MSCI value index up 22% compared to the growth index up 8%. And when you consider multi-factor or, you know, other big factors like momentum that's been talked about in the media quite frequently and most people are quite familiar with, it is the first time since 2016 that we are now seeing value and momentum shares uh, collide and actually replicate the same sort of characteristics. That actually would mean that uh, the value trend would pick up speed as momentum starts pushing it as well, and that would actually lead to a further outperformance of, of value against growth. And that's just sort of the normal occurrence that you see um, in, in the markets when you follow the factors. So you don't even have to be a great stock picker to benefit from this uh, this uh, trend. You could just purely be invested in a multi-factor portfolio where, where you can capitalize on, on the move from, from growth to value. Harry Smith of the Ascendus Activist Lobby Group has been signaling the alarm that there's something amiss with trading in Ascendus stock on the JSE. Earlier, he spoke to me, Jackie Cameron, about why his group has called for an investigation into market manipulation. Many small investors bought the stock for 15 rand and more, and it is now trading for less than 60 cents a share. But the big shareholders got out just in time. Take a listen. Can you please tell us what's been happening in terms of the share price manipulation? Because it seems there's been a lot of unusual activity with the Ascendus Health share. Yeah, Jackie, you've actually got to trace it back to May 2020, where Ascendus announced um, the interim, the first interim stability agreement, which was very positive news for Ascendus Health. And it should have actually caused a, a share to, to jump. And then in September 2020, interim resolve came up. It was much higher than market expectations, and once again, the share should have jumped. And then um, in October 2020, the CFO gets replaced for some uncertain reasons. And then in 2020, we get another positive market update period. All the time, the share keeps on dropping, dropping, dropping. That's what And then we started monitoring what has actually happened, and it seems that during this period, PRC and mergence offloaded a huge bundle of shares. And it doesn't make sense that if you've got a market with all kinds of positive news coming through, why would they be dropping almost 4% of their shareholding during this period? And then five January, your sense comes out that Blantyre um, has basically tried to come with a stealth operation to take over this company. And just for people who are not familiar with the story so far, Blantyre is a creditor who then decided to 
uh, snap up equity in the company in exchange for the debt. Can you just explain what happened there? Yeah, health. Um, they went behind the scenes. Um, the had a couple of debt arrangements with Standard Chartered, EFSA, and a couple of other people. But in there, obviously, there were payment in kind arrangements on that. And that is where the problem came with the Senders House finance situation. Those payment in kinds were at interest rates of 13% in US dollars terms, which was unsustainable. And Blantyre somehow managed to go behind the scenes and get hold of the financial information and went at a discount to the banks behind the scenes and said, you know what, we'll pay you in full for the loan that Ascenders holds, um, then we'll take over the debt and we'll sort it out with Ascenders from you on. And they went at a market discount just yet to be disclosed and bought basically almost 75% of the debts that are seen as owed to the creditors. So when this deal was going on, did this deal happen just before the PIC and Mergence dumped their shares in Ascendus? No, PIC and Mergence dumped their shares prior to this deal, and that is where the confusion arises. Do you think they had wind of this deal, or you know, presumably deals like this don't just happen quickly? There's a, there must be a lot of talk behind the scenes. Yes, as I say, what is what is interesting to me at the moment is the fact that um, I mean nobody had wind of the deal until five of five ten. I mean it was done on us as a surprise. And why would you, with all the positive senses coming through in the marketplace, this is just what is so suspect. Um, if it's just positive news, positive news, positive news coming through, why would you jump down to shoes? And not in small. Um, in, in large trances. It is strange because this company was uh, is said to benefit from the ivermectin interest and, and has really uh, it looked like it had a very rosy future. That's great. So what happened now? Uh, Did you it's report? Kind of a rosy, it's not a rosy future. I mean, if you take the last trading update, I mean, everything has increased. All the sales volumes have increased. The profit margins have increased. Everything has increased. So it's a very, it's an excellent company with a little bit of a big problem. That's all that it's saying. And it's basically because of the payment kind transactions that have got going that it's, it's gone into this little bit of a big problem. So they could have paid the debt, but the, the creditors insisted on a, a different arrangement. That's right, because they were looking for suitors for Medicare through they had the Jeffries report that came out, which went to the market, looked at the big farmers, saying to the big farmers, we've got a stake in uh, our businesses for sale, um, are you interested? And all of a sudden, all of that just got cancelled. It got cancelled, and Blantyre stepped in and said, we will not support any sales, we will not support anything, um, we now own the debt, so we basically taking over on our debt equity swap. That was Harry Smith of the Ascenders Activist Lobby Group. That was Harry Smith of the Ascenders Activist Lobby Group, who has been signalling the alarm that there's something amiss with trading in Ascenders stock. Coming up, Jamie Dimon is CEO of J.P. Morgan, one of the largest listed banks in the world. Our partners at Bloomberg caught up with him for his insights on markets and the U.S. economy. Many years ago, we sent an airplane full of people to China, took all the competition. So J.P. Moore itself is doing great. So all of our people, look at it, we're doing quite fine. But you have fintech, big tech. You saw Walmart recently. So we just have to be prepared for intensified competition. We're, we're ready for it. We're very competitive, and we expect to win. But prepared how? What does that mean? Do you, do you have to go out and buy something? Can you build it organically? Do you invert the Walmart model and just start opening delicatessens to compete toe-to-toe? No, so we already have 5,000 branches. We're opening all, we're going to open another 400 in the next couple of years. We'll be in all 48 states. And of course, those branches do a lot. They take deposits. They do wealth management. They do small business lending. They are really important to private banks, commercial bank clients, et cetera. So no, we've got the people, the capability. We can do 100% organic. However, we're open-minded. If people have ideas for us about acquisitions or partnership, we're completely open to have those conversations too. But the growth of some of these fintech companies, you know, if I look at Adyen or Stripe, for example, it's been so exponential. And then I look at what some of your competitors have done, Morgan Stanley, notably with the E-Trade deal. Do you not think there would be a case we made that JP Morgan should go out and just buy one of these giant fintech companies, plug it in, and then you're good to go? So you should assume we look at everything. And like I said, we some of the things we do ourselves, we've done quite well in these areas too. But you're absolutely correct. Some of these people have done a great job. 
and sometimes by it's not cheaper. It's not even better. It's usually just ease of use or something like that. But I look, I assume they're coming. I've dealt with competition my whole life, and we're open-minded acquisitions. We're open-minded to building ourselves. But what we tell the people here in this very room, in fact, is you, we should do what we need to do to win in technology, people, systems, marketing, analytics, AI. Uh, and obviously, we're doing an awful lot of AI and cloud work and things like that. Another thing fintech has done or at least is partly responsible for is this sort of democratization of investing, obviously the rise of the retail trader, the Reddit crowd, Roaring Kitty, whatever you want to call it, is, is creating this narrative at the moment of David v. Goliath. Now, as a very prominent Goliath, do the Davids have a point? Is the system rigged? God. <laughs> very, well, stacked against that, them at least. In every bull market that has happened in my life. So this is not a new phenomenon. And I do believe that people should learn how to invest their money, but they should do the homework. I mean, thinking you go on and just gamble and play, that's, that doesn't have a long-term success record. And so, But to the extent that people are learning and they're getting involved, so that, that's a good thing. So for some, it's going to end badly, and for some, it'll probably end up well. But the best investors learn over a long period of time how to be a good investor. Just like the best tennis players, the best boxers, the best media folks, the notion that you can be great at it because you... Um, I remember my daughter made her first investment and it went up and I was thinking to myself, oh God, it would be far better had it gone down. You learn, you learn a little bit more that way sometimes. Well, one bit of the industry that obviously has been savage to some extent recently is, is the short selling hedge funds. Do you think that industry is in crisis because of this effect we're seeing or this phenomena of the, the retail trader? Absolutely not. I, the, the, the retail trade in dollars is a teeny, the, what you're talking about is a teeny wean little bit of the market. The market is global. I mean, something like $10 trillion is bought and sold every single day. And when we say investors, you're talking about retail investors, pension plans, hedge funds, money managers, uh, individuals. I've been buying and selling stocks I've been 12 or 13. So I, I believe in that. But my dad taught me how to read a balance sheet when I was 13. It wasn't just, you know, maybe I was guessing a little bit. But uh, but I look, it opens it up. But no, there, there are legitimate complaints about short selling, more around transparency and the duplication of the vote of the ability to short sell the stock. There are legitimate issues around all these things. That, you know, if, if the regular is going to be looking at payment forward to flow, high frequency trading, uh, uh, disclosure about ownership, voting, short selling, those are good things. And, you know, to me, should people be able to pay forward to flow? I, I think payment forward to flow is a very complex subject. I think there should be much, maybe, but there should be much stricter rules about what you mean by that. It's not clear to me that everyone does the same payment for the flow. So if, if, I, if I'm paying a lot more to someone else or keeping a lot more for myself, you probably have the right to know. And there are certain disclosures that are not very good. Moving on to the, I guess, the biggest question in finance right now, which is, is the stimulus enough? Is it too much? Uh, even the interventionists can't seem to agree on this point. You have Larry Summers on the one side saying enough already. You have Janet Yellen, Jay Powell, and others on the other saying more is needed. What do you think? So getting through COVID is absolutely critical. And we're still in it, though God knows it looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel, you know, by the beginning of the summer or something like that. But and it's not a binary subject. I think, you know, Democrats and Republicans are like ships passing the night. There are legitimate complaints about stuff in this bill that has nothing to do with COVID. There are a lot of people suffering who need help. Both are true. So if you want to go through, you go through all the detail. Unemployed, they definitely need help. Small businesses, they definitely need help. People at the lower end, they definitely need help. Women who had to go home, who basically stopped working because they had to go take care of something like that, they definitely need help. You know, does every, I don't know if you know this, but like half the states, revenues went up. They didn't go down. Do they need help? You know, and we just throwing money at people at one point. So and there will be another side to that mountain. So they should be cautious about overdoing it. Get us through the prom, get the country growing. But, you know, don't try not to overdo it too much. But, but isn't the risk exactly that, that if you have places and states, people that don't need help and are getting the help, you overflood the system. Yeah. You do create this huge risk of inflation. Yeah, and the system already has a little bit of that. So if you look at what's in the system, it looks to us like there's a trillion dollars, a trillion of this unspent. That's before this billion nine, trillion nine. So there will be money like, you know, there's a very good chance you're going to have a gangbuster economy for the rest of this year and, you know, easily into 2022. And the question is, does that overheat everything? And we just don't know yet. But I would put that on the things to worry about. You know, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I would worry more about COVID and nuclear war than I'd worry about that. But you know, I would I would suspect there's a pretty good chance you're going to see rates going up and, you know, people starting to worry about that at one point. Let's talk about COVID for a second. Uh, I've been very clear. I would not buy 10-year treasuries, just so you know. Right. Um, 
on, on COVID, we are obviously doing this interview in person, which is fantastic. We're doing it in your offices here in New York, but still largely empty as are my offices, as probably are a lot of people's offices. How important is it to a business like JP Morgan to actually have people physically coming back to work? It's very important. I mean, I, look, I do think there'll be part of the world where a certain amount of people work from home permanently, certain sales, certain ops, so you can track the productivity, et cetera. I think there'll be a large portion who permanently work in the office. Think of our branches, cash management, probably most of the trading floors, et cetera. And there'll be some hybrids where you spend two days, two weeks at home and two weeks in the office or three weeks at home, a week in the office, or three days and two days and two days and three days. But So I think it will reduce the need for commercial real estate, but there are huge weaknesses to the Zoom world. I mean, most of us learned by an apprenticeship system, by you know seeing mistakes, going to trips, how do you handle a client, how do you handle a problem. So it's hard to inculcate culture and character and all those things when you have the Zoom world. Spontaneous combustion, it goes away. Hard to manage, you know, it's hard to be very critical. You got 15 people on the screen. So what before was like a, a deep dive question, now it looks a little bit rude. And I took a trip to California, I met 100 people all outside, all wonderful, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's amazing how much you learn about your own business, your own bankers, your own clients, your own products. And, you know, I met with Snowflake and Marketa. What you learn about technology and systems, you're not going to do that in the Zoom world. And, you know, so bankers, you know, relationships. I think it's very hard to build and develop and deepen relationship on the Zoom world. So you still, you know, there'll be more Zooming. People like me will travel just as much as I did in the past. As and when the vaccine does become available for your workforce, will you make it mandatory for people to take it if they do want to return? It's hard to make it mandatory. And there are laws about that. But I think what we'd like to do is kind of have carrots and sticks. We want people to take it. I think it's a far better thing. Uh, you certainly can't make it mandatory before it's fully accessible. So that question can't even be answered until June. Um, but, but I do think you may see some companies do it. I mean, You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. My colleague Melanie Nathan has the business news highlights. Exaro Resources has announced increased revenue of almost 29 billion rand for the year ended in December. Net operating profit dropped by a third. Headline earnings per share dropped slightly and the company declared a final dividend. After the disposal of Exaro's shareholdings in Tronox Holdings, the proceeds will be used for a special dividend and a 1.5 billion rand share buyback program. African Rainbow Capital's intrinsic net asset value per share dropped over the half-year ended in December. It says intrinsic portfolio value increased over the period. TimeBank has signed on close to 3 million customers, half of which were active at the end of the year. Rain saw a fair value increase of 380 million rand. Cash in the ARC fund increased to over 400 million rand. After recent news that South African finance company Barrack Fund Management is seeking approval to restructure its $4 billion fund because half of its assets are tied up in illiquid investments across Africa, it has emerged that employees had previously raised alarm over the valuation of assets and the quality of collateral. The firm says its compliance officer found no wrongdoing when allegations were investigated. China's Sinovac biocompany may be able to supply South Africa with as many as 5 million doses of its COVID-19 vaccine within weeks of securing regulatory clearances. This is according to the drug maker's local partner, Numolux. The vaccines could be delivered two to three weeks after approval is granted, said CEO Hilton Klein. Tanzanian President John Magufuli, who was criticized for his denialism of the coronavirus pandemic, has died only five months after he won a second term in a disputed election. He was 61. Vice President Samia Hassan announced that Magufuli had died from a heart ailment in hospital. I'm Melanie Nathan and that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. Justin Rowe Roberts of biznews.com covers the stock market throughout the day. Justin, take us through the highlights. The JSC All Share Index was down to 66,600. Some of the day's highlights include Sabanya Stillwater was up over 6% to 71 rand a share on the back of stronger commodity prices. Nedbank was down on the day to 131 rand a share. Truewiz was down 4% to 48 rand a share. After a strong rally over the last few weeks, MTN was slightly down to 87 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 78 cents against the dollar, 20 rand 55 cents against the pound, and 17 rand 
sixty-two cents against the euro. Gold is weak at one thousand seven hundred and twenty-one dollars an ounce. The premium cryptocurrency is up at eight hundred and fifty thousand rand per bitcoin. Lastly, another down day for Brent crude, falling to sixty-six dollars a barrel. And that's all we've got time for here on the Biz News Power Hour. From me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the team at biznews.com, thank you for joining us here on Fine Music Radio FM and DSTV Channel 838. You can catch up with all of the Biz News Power Hour interviews on our Spotify channel. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Until next time. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.